Welcome to the St George's Leeds Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy the talk. Good morning, everyone. Well, my name is Lizzie Wolfe. I'm the rector here at St George's. And today we are continuing our series looking at the Holy Spirit. Now, you may remember that in the Old Testament, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, the Holy Spirit came upon particular people at particular times for particular tasks. So, for example, Gideon received the Holy Spirit for leadership. Samson received the Holy Spirit for strength. And we looked at some other examples as well. But as you read the Old Testament, there's a rising sense of anticipation. Something new is going to happen. It's referred to as the promise of the Father. A time will come when God pours out his Holy Spirit on everyone on all believers. That's what happened at Pentecost. And so we now live in the age of the Holy Spirit. And the promise of the Holy Spirit is for every Christian. So today we're going to think about this. How can I be filled with the Holy Spirit? Now, every Christian has the Holy Spirit living within them. But not every Christian is filled with the Holy Spirit. So St. Paul writes to the Christians at Ephesus, and he tells them, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you actually look at the original Greek that that's written in, he's used a very unusual tense for the verb, and it actually means Go on being filled with the Holy Spirit over and over and over and over again. So, to help us think about how we can be filled with the Holy Spirit, we're going to look at five examples from the book of Acts. And the key verses are all going to come up on the screen, or obviously you can look them up if you've got a Bible with you. So we haven't had one Bible reading at the start of the sermon like we normally do, because there's going to be quite a few as we go through. Now, in these five uh, examples that we're going to look at from Acts, what we see is five different categories of people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And there might be people who are here today in one of these categories. The first category is those who are longing to receive. So in Acts chapter 1 and 2, we read about 120 people waiting, longing for the promise of the Father, praying and praying and praying. And if you're here today in that category, the good news is that on the day of Pentecost, they heard a sound like the blowing of a violent wind, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So that was our first verse. I think it is going to come up on the screen at some point. But that's what it says. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So that's the first category, those who are longing to receive. The second category 
is this, people who are receptive. So this is what's coming up on the screen now. Acts chapter 8, I'm going to read to you from verses 14 to 20. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them, they'd simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So far, so good. But listen to what happens next. When Simon, now Simon is a sorcerer, saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. So it's not a good idea to offer money for the gift of the Holy Spirit. But something amazing must have happened for Simon the sorcerer to watch it and say, wow, give me also this ability. So that was the group who was receptive. We've had those who were longing and those who were receptive. The third category is a little bit different. The third category, there are people who are hostile. Now, the supreme example of this is the person who later became the Apostle Paul. When Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr, was stoned, we're told that Paul, or Saul as he was known at that time, was there giving approval to his death. And then in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, which is what they called the early Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So you couldn't really get someone who was more hostile than Saul was at that stage of his life. But then you probably know the story. He sets out for Damascus, and whilst he's on the road, he has an extraordinary encounter with Jesus. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. His life is completely transformed, and he starts to go around telling people, Jesus is alive. Jesus is the Son of God. Now, there are people today who are hostile to the Christian faith. I often think of the example of a man called Robert Taylor, who was 41, and he had been to church four times in his life. He'd been to his own wedding, his brother's wedding, and two funerals. He was a very successful businessman, but he was unsuccessful in his marriage, and actually he had left his wife and his two young children. He was on a business deal, and a man said to him, Robert, have you ever thought about going on the Alpha course at HTB, which is a church in London? 
Robert said, no, don't be ridiculous, I'm an atheist. I wouldn't dream of going to church. Then a few weeks later, he was on a different business deal and a different man said to him, Robert, have you ever thought about going on an alpha course at HTB? And he said, that's funny, that's what the other guy said. Maybe I'll give it a try. So he came on the Alpha course at HTB, which is a, a church I used to go to in London. And he said he wanted to make it absolutely clear that he was not actually remotely interested. So on the first night, in the small group discussion, he said, well, look, I nearly died of cancer when I was 30 years old. I find life pretty difficult and not a lot of fun. So as far as I'm concerned, eternal life is the last thing that I would want. So I can't really see what Christianity's got to offer me. Well, that, that did cast a bit of a pall over the small group. Uh, but the leader just said, well, that's a really interesting point of view. And uh, the group continued. And they came to the Alpha Day Away, which is about halfway through the course. And on the Alpha Day Away, Robert gave his life to Christ. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He said he, he felt a real glow. He had to sit down. Other people said he was beaming like a Cheshire cat. So, he went home after the Alpha Day Away, and he went to tell his wife, the one that he'd left, what had happened. And she said, oh no, Robert, here we go again. First we had golf, then scuba diving, then sailing, now this, you'll get over it. But he was determined to show her that this was different. And so quite quickly she said, okay then, if it makes so much difference, come back and live with us. Well, the children thought it was completely fantastic. Samuel, who was seven at the time, was so excited that he got hold of a Bible and started reading it. And he said, Dad, this is a great book. I'm in it. Not once, but twice. <laughs> now, that man's life was totally changed. So much so that we asked him to lead a small group on the next Alpha course. He said, I've been an atheist for 41 years and a Christian for about six weeks. How can I possibly lead a small group? We said, we'd love you to lead a small group. Now, after the second week of Alpha, someone bumped into him in the Christian bookshop buying this huge pile of books. And he said, well, look, last week, I didn't know the answers to any of the questions that the small group were discussing. So I came and I bought all these books and I've been reading them all week. But, but this week they asked a load of different questions and so I've had to come and I've bought all these books. He had gone from being someone who was quite hostile to telling other people that Jesus is Lord because he'd encountered Christ and been filled with the Holy Spirit. So that's our third category, people who are hostile. The fourth category is people who are uninformed. Now we can read about them in Acts chapter 19 and verses 1 to 6. It said, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, well, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. 
Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Now, there are people today who believe they might even go to church, but they're uninformed about the Holy Spirit. I was actually in that position myself for quite a number of years. When I was a teenager, I had some school friends who told me about Jesus, and after quite a lot of conversations, I decided that I was going to follow Jesus. But I didn't know anything at all about the Holy Spirit. It was several years later before someone prayed for me and I was filled with the Holy Spirit. It brought my, life, my faith to life in this new and profound way. But it was then another few years before anybody actually explained to me what had happened and who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. So we've had those who were longing, those who were receptive, those who were hostile, and those who were uninformed. The fifth category is the unlikely. So we're going to look at what happened the first time that Gentiles, non-Jews, were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, at the time, this was quite shocking because all the first Christians were Jews. And actually, they didn't think that you could become a Christian unless you first became a Jew. So it took quite a lot to convince them that Gentiles could be filled with the Holy Spirit. And there might be people here today who would say, well, I'm quite unlikely, actually. I'm not really the religious type. And uh, this category is potentially then for you. So what happened was this. God gave some visions to a man called Cornelius, who was a Gentile, and also to the Apostle Peter. And as a result of these visions, Peter came to Cornelius' house. Cornelius gathered some people together. They were all Gentiles. And Peter started to tell them about Jesus, about the cross, and the, resurre the resurrection. So we'll pick up the story in Acts chapter 10 and verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers, that's the Jews, who had come with Peter, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They've received the Holy Spirit, just as we have. Now, we're going to look at this unlikely group in a bit more detail than we looked at some of the others. So, what happened to them? Well, the first thing is that they experienced the love of God. The Apostle Paul tells us that the experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit is this, the love of God being poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So that's what they experienced, God's love being poured into their hearts. 
Now, it seems like there may have been some physical manifestations of what was going on, because Peter says they received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Now, Peter, if you remember, received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, when they saw tongues of fire and they heard a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. Fire symbolizes the power and the purity of God. And sometimes, as people are filled with the Holy Spirit, they feel a sensation of heat, either in their hands or in their body. Sometimes being filled with the Holy Spirit is a little bit more like wind, like the breath of God coming into someone. So you might see someone's eyelids fluttering, or you might see them breathing deeply, breathing in the breath of God. And occasionally, you see people who fall over, a bit like a tree being blown over in the wind. Now, when we talk about this, uh, it's really important that we get the right balance. Because I am not suggesting that you should or that you will experience this sort of manifestation. But if we don't ever mention them when we're talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit, then people can be taken by surprise. And then they come and they say, why didn't you warn us that this might happen? What matters is not the outward physical manifestation, but the inward experience of God's love. I love the prayer that Paul prays for the Christians at Ephesus. And I think it's probably what he would pray for us today as well. So Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 16 says, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So he's praying that we would understand the love of God, how wide it is. It stretches round the entire world, every nation. How long it is, it lasts for our whole life and beyond. How deep it is, it can reach down to us when we're in the lowest place. And how high it is, it lifts us up high as sons and daughters of God. And if you take those things, how wide and long and deep and high is the love of God, they form a cross. And supremely, it's on the cross that we understand Christ's love for us. Jesus died for us. If you ever doubt that God loves you, look at the cross. So Paul prays that they may grasp the love of Christ, understand it in their minds. But then, interestingly, he goes on and he's, he prays and, and know this love that surpasses knowledge. So I think what he's saying is that we can't actually understand this love purely intellectually. 
We need to experience it in our hearts, and it's the Holy Spirit who gives us that experience. I love the story of the couple who always argued. I have a story before, so you might have heard it before, but it is a good one. To everybody's surprise, this couple reached their 50th wedding anniversary, and their children decided to get together and give them a present to mark the occasion. And they gave them an all-expenses-paid trip to see a top consultant psychiatrist. <laughs> so, the couple argued on the way there. They sat in the waiting room, and they argued. They came in to see this consultant psychiatrist, and he asked them an opening question, and they just argued. Eventually, the top consultant psychiatrist said, stop. I am going to do something that I have never done before in the whole of my professional life. And he got up from behind his desk, he walked around, he took the old lady in his arms, and he kissed her on the lips for a very long time. And then he said to the man, that is what this lady needs three times a week. So the little old man scratched his head and he said, okay, doctor, if that's what you say, I'll bring her in Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. <laughs> now, what that psychiatrist was trying to say was that the lady needed to experience love. We all do. And the deepest experience of love that we can ever have is the love of God being poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So that's the first thing that happened to this unlikely group of Gentiles. They experienced the love of God. The second thing is that they were released to express their love to God. So if we go back to Acts chapter 10 and verse 46 for a moment, it says, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Now, spontaneous praise is the language of those who are excited about their relationship with God. Praise is a response. We experience God's love, and we want to express our love back to him. The African theologian St. Augustine wrote, The thought of you, God, stirs a person so deeply that they cannot be content unless they praise you. Because you made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. That's what worship is about. That's why we sing songs about God's love for us and our love for him. Now, expressing our love for God can actually involve our whole beings. Sometimes people are surprised to see people raising their hands during the worship time in church. But actually, that's the earliest form of Christian worship. The New Testament speaks about raising holy hands in prayer. And on the tombstones of the early Christians, you can often see carvings of them raising their hands as they worship. So if you go to a church and everybody's got their hands raised during the singing, just say to yourself, that's fine, I've come to a really traditional church where they're using the forms of worship that have been used since the earliest times. And if you go to a church where they're singing hymns, perhaps with their hands by their sides, just say to yourself, that's fine, I've come to a trendy modern church where they are experimenting with new forms of worship. Either 
is fine. The point is that we should be free to do what is comfortable for us, to express ourselves in worship. So that's the second thing. The Holy Spirit released them to express their love for God. The third thing is that they received a new love language. So if we go back to Acts chapter 10 and verse 46 again, it says, for they heard them speaking in tongues. Now, tongues is a language that is not learned. Not all Christians speak in tongues, and it's not actually the most important gift. It's often last in Paul's lists of the gifts of the Spirit. But it is a good gift from God. Paul talks about two types of tongue, human and angelic. A human tongue is where God gives us a language that we haven't learnt, but it is a recognisable human language. So that's what happened on the day of Pentecost, when people from lots of different places heard the disciples speaking in their own native languages. More often, it's an angelic tongue, so that's not a language that you would recognise. Paul tells us that tongues is a form of prayer that transcends the language barrier. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 14, it says, If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So in other words, it's a way of expressing what you're feeling in your heart without going through that process of putting it into a language that you know. Sometimes in human conversation, we want to express something, but we can't quite find the right words. With God, he can give you this language that frees you from having to find the right words. I found that tongues is an amazing gift, and it's particularly helpful in worship, where I seem to run out of words quite quickly, and also when things are really tough, and I just don't really know quite what to pray. The speaker is in full control, so you can start and you can stop whenever you want to. But it's a beautiful gift from God that can help us to express our love in our relationship with God. So let's do a quick recap of this fifth category, this group of unlikely Gentiles. When they were filled with the Holy Spirit, we've seen that three things happened to them. Firstly, they experienced the love of God. Secondly, they were released to express their love for God in praise. And thirdly, they received a new love language. So that's what happened to them. But the big question for today is would you like to be filled with the Holy Spirit? In a moment, we will have an opportunity to pray and to ask the Holy Spirit to come and to fill us, if that's what you'd like to do. But before we do that, I want to take a super quick look at Luke chapter 11. Because in Luke chapter 11, we can see three common barriers to being filled with the Holy Spirit. Doubt, fear, and inadequacy. Now, these three barriers quite often hide behind people saying something like, oh, I'm fine. I pray for someone else. They've got much greater need than me. 
But when you look behind that, you often find that what's really holding people back is doubt, fear, or inadequacy. So first of all, doubt. In Luke chapter 11 and verse 9, Jesus says to his disciples, ask and it will be given to you. And I kind of imagine the disciples might be sitting there going, "Mm, I'm not sure. So Jesus says, seek and you will find. Mm, Possibly. So he says it a third time. Knock and the door will be opened to you. But perhaps the disciples are still feeling doubtful because Jesus goes on in verse 10. For everyone who asks receives. Those who seek find. And to those who knock, the door will be opened. Now everyone includes you. So then the second one, the second barrier is fear. This is when we say, okay, I'm convinced that I would receive if I asked, but would it be a good thing? So Jesus uses an analogy. In verse 11, he says, look, some of you here are fathers. Imagine that you are looking after your son and you ask your son, what would you like for lunch? And your son says, oh, fish and chips, please, dad. Jesus doesn't mention the chips, but um, fish. And uh, you go off, and you get a snake. And you go, here you are. And then the next morning, you say to your son, what would you like for breakfast? He's probably a bit more reticent this time, but he says, okay, I'll have a boiled egg, please. And you go, okay, here's a scorpion. Jesus says, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And then the third barrier is inadequacy, that sense of unworthiness. Sometimes people say, oh, I don't think I've been a Christian long enough, or you don't know what my life is really like. If you did, you wouldn't expect God to give me the Holy Spirit. But Jesus doesn't say, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who've been Christians for a very long time? And he doesn't say, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who are particularly holy? He says, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So shall we ask him? Thank you for listening to the St George's Lead Sermon Podcast. For more talks or information, visit stgs.org.uk.